the important role that policy can play for a climate and sustainability startup. It's different than what I've seen in past times in my career with things like the Inflation Reduction Act, the Infrastructure Act, I think is more profoundly impacting and creating opportunities for climate and sustainability-focused startups. Hi, and welcome to Move Fast and Fix the Planet. I'm your host, Michael Levick, Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Stanford. I'm also an Associate Faculty Director of STVP, the Stanford Engineering Entrepreneurship Center, where we empower aspiring entrepreneurs to become global citizens who create and scale responsible innovations. Of course, one of the biggest global challenges we face is climate change and the sustainability of our planet. In each episode of this podcast, we'll talk to a different expert about entrepreneurship in climate and sustainability and what's different about it, if anything, from entrepreneurship in other spaces. So today, we're welcoming Dan Dorison. Dan's a corporate partner at the law firm Fenwick & West with over 25 years of experience in Silicon Valley. He specializes in providing legal counsel to technology startup companies, including climate tech companies and to the venture capitalist investors who fund them. His background includes serving on the executive management teams of several VC-funded startups and a public technology company earlier in his career. Dan is also a lecturer here at Stanford, teaching on startup company formation and financing, and serves on the STVP Board of Advisors. He also serves on the Board of Directors of the Pacific Forest Trust. His BA is here from Stanford in economics, and his JD is from UCLA. Welcome, Dan. Thank you, Mike. I am delighted to be here with you. Well, we have lots of stuff that we want to try to cover today, so, so we'll, we'll jump right into it. All righty. So with, with your extensive experience representing startup technology companies, what do you think are some of the legal issues pertaining to climate and sustainability startups? You know, and do you think that they're different compared to tech startups in other domains that you've worked with? Yeah. And we, of course, have discussed this topic uh, during the spring quarter in the seminar. Um, so I, I think the, my, my threshold observation would be is every startup, every technology-based startup has a unique set of issues that, that arise from its technology, the market it's approaching, uh, the current you know, government situation. There's just a whole range of considerations that entrepreneurs have to navigate. So in that respect, what I'm observing are for climate and sustainability startups, the, the construct of having to navigate multiple issues and, and apply them to your unique situation is not different than what I've seen for years and years with startups. So core issues such as assessing risks in the business, figuring out how to attract capital, how to allocate control between the capital providers and the, the founding team and the, and the employees, product market fit, how do you go to market, do you have that core product market fit? Do you have the right team, the right technology? All those, all those conceptual aspects, in my experience, are continue to be there for climate sustainability startups. There are some core differences, I think, having said that, that I'm observing. One that you and I have talked about at times is, I think, um, the important role that policy can play for 
a climate and sustainability startup. It's, it's different, I think, than what I've seen in, in past times in my career where, yes, government regulation and navigating that has always been important, but with things like the Inflation Reduction Act, um, the Infrastructure Act, uh, hopefully there's more similar legislation to come, state and local legislation. You know, there's all, California is, is a whole range of legislation that, for example, is coming out of California, I think is more profoundly impacting and creating opportunities for startups or climate and sustainability-focused startups. And in that context, I'm seeing a greater need for, for these startups to, at an earlier stage, and with more deep expertise, have the ability to deeply understand how legislation is going to affect their business. You know, the Inflation Reduction Act, tax credits, uh, having you know feet on the ground in Washington. So I'm having startups in a way I've never seen before or earlier with startups having you know inside the Beltway lobbying firms on you know on their team, or in some cases actually having executives who. Or competency is is built around policy. How do you how do you deal with the Department of Energy? How do you deal with Congress on interpreting a, or in influencing legislation? So those are some key differences. And the other major area is for many climate startups that are seeking to fundamentally reinvent core aspects of an energy industry. So energy storage. Uh, green hydrogen, uh, you know, any number of things. The amount of capital those companies require is extraordinary, as we all know. And in many cases, traditional venture capital isn't a perfect match for that. So having core competency around project finance and um, other financing vehicles, you know, very large expansion financing vehicles is, a, is something that's new and different for these startups than what I've seen, you know, for enterprise software companies 15 years ago or something. You know, so do you think that that makes it harder for firms in this space because there's additional layering of sort of this kind of, you know, as you kind of framed it, policy risk? Uh, and not that it wasn't already super difficult to get a company to go from, from idea to, to, to success. Is it harder or just different? Uh... Different. I mean, I think as, as uh, Tina Selig says, um, it's an opportunity, right? Uh, you know, challenges are also opportunities. And I'm seeing lots of companies either, you know, leverage, again, we'll just focus on the Inflation Reduction Act for a moment, leverage the opportunities created by, for example, particular tax production tax credits or investment tax credits that create opportunities in their go-to-market, in their product market fit, that lead them to craft how they might run their business, leveraging those opportunities. But at the same time, absolutely, there, there are challenges, right? Having to, the vagaries of how those will be interpreted. And then, you know, this probably gets beyond the, the scope of this conversation, but, you know, it's politics. Mm -hmm. it's, it can change. There are multiple agendas going on in a piece of legislation like the Inflation Reduction Act. Yes, it's trying to, well, look at it just its title. It was title is inflation. Uh, it does a ton around climate, but it also has a strong bent towards improving 
labor conditions and revitalizing particular economic zones that perhaps maybe had coal plants in the past. So challenges and opportunities both. I want to drill down a little bit on one of the comments that you made about startups in this space getting into the policy space maybe earlier than you would have thought previously. You know, for startups that are thinking about the space, is, is it ever too early to interface with K Street? It's a great question. Um, of course, K Street being the yeah, yeah, the, yeah, absolutely, no, no, yeah, for, for policy uh, lobbying yeah, and poli policy avenue in Washington D.C. Um, I, I don't think so. I mean, I'll, I'll give you um, with, with with the caveat that that such consultants are not cheap. And, and capital efficiency is an incredibly important part of any venture-backed startup. Absolutely. But, but I guess another take on this is um, there are, there are so, climate means so many things. It, it's like saying, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm focused on tech. There are just many, many aspects and attributes and problems and opportunities in the world of climate and sustainability that entrepreneurs are, can approach through, you know, the vehicle of a new venture raising capital to solve a big problem that they identify. And for some of those companies, it is truly, you know, it's, it is, they're going to need to figure out how to raise $500 million over time and reinvent the way that cement is made, a world that I know you know well, or mm -hmm. um, solve the riddle of, of clean hydrogen, what have you. There are also a lot of startups, many startups, I see more and more, um, that are leveraging opportunities created by changing regulation, changing policy views, and building businesses around those opportunities. I'll give you one small example, a company called Crux Climate, mm. which, you know, the founders had the vision to say, hey, the Inflation Reduction Act is creating all these investment tax credits and production tax credits that are transferable. It's a fundamental difference in how the whole tax equity market has wor worked in the past. These are transferable. So they've created a marketplace. You know, it's software, I take it. They've created a marketplace and a business opportunity and a venture financeable startup leveraging that to create efficiency in the market for transferable tax credits to help facilitate the finance of clean energy. Is that going to require, you know, hundreds of million dollars of capital from project finance? No. Is it going to require a lobbyist in the, on K Street? It could. I'm not, I don't know. I don't know. But what I've seen is these founders deeply understand the policy, the rules, you know, as part of their core competency, you know, to establish, to create a, a product market fit and how to go to market. And is there a business opportunity? And saying, my gosh, I'm going to launch a business around this recognizing this opportunity created by this enormous piece of legislation. Yeah. You know, I, I guess as we think about founders and founding teams and skill sets, it, it, it brings in uh, another, another attribute of founders that, that venture capitalists look for, and, and if not necessarily a, a very deep knowledge of the policy, an awareness of how important the policy is and how to leverage it for your success. Yeah. Um, we'll just layer on another thing that founders need to do well, right? <laughs> yeah, and I, but again, this kind of comes full circle. And obviously, I'm not a professional investor. I'm not a venture capitalist, but I've had the good fortune to work around a lot of great investors and, and, and watch 
and hopefully help in small measure at the building of, of companies. First principles, you know, the beginning of our conversation, what's changed, what's, what's not changed. What's not changed is entrepreneurs, I think, you know, need to have passion and deep domain knowledge of the problem they're going to solve and resiliency and flexibility, all those things. But, but at core, they need to know the market they're going to go solve. And so it, it so happens for many of these companies today, from what I'm seeing, that core, that deep domain knowledge includes understanding how government regulation uh, affects their go-to-market, the business model, how their customers, you know, how, how does this product pencil out for our target customers? And for example, if the government creates some incentives that we can craft our business to leverage, we can then, you know, create an opportunity to scale because we go to middle America uh, energy companies and say, you adopt our solution, we fit squarely within these rules and you can proceed. So to your question, the core competency of knowing your business cold and being able to demonstrate that to partners, you know, investors, customers, I think continues to be a, a critical attribute for successful entrepreneurs. Yeah. And, you know, you had mentioned the class we taught last year and, and how much of the findings were. A lot of stuff is is the same when we when we talk about entrepreneurship in the climate and sustainability space. And, and this is one of those things where there, it's a little a little bit different. You know, one, one of the other things that I'd, I'd like to drill into a bit more, uh, you know, you, you talked about an example where uh, it's a startup that is taking advantage of new tax policy and the way we treat some of some of these tax opportunities. I want to talk a little bit about longevity, right? In, in, in that in, in the policy space, there are, of course, changes in administration. Uh, every uh, election introduces the risk of a change uh, of policy. Does that create more fragility or higher risk in this space? And, and do you think maybe the, the European Union, which tends to have maybe a little bit more steady regulatory policy in this space, does that provide an advantage to startups in this space operating in, in, in the EU sphere? So let's just with the longevity piece. How do you how do you think about that? Yeah, I think that is a, a very compelling and and legitimate question. Um, I think it is a risk, and I suspect that there is some concern, and, and that that does create some challenge for startups. Fundamentally, their business is dependent upon a particular credit. Let's just say. Yeah, you're at risk of what we call like stroke of the pen devaluation, right? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I, and I certainly don't, you know, the example we shared around that, the, the, the transferable tax credits, I don't know enough about their core business plans to know whether, how that's fit into their company. But I think it's certainly a risk. And I think, the, I suspect the expectation is that once they were able to create some presence in the market, you know, the expectation is there will continue to be a tax equity market in that particular example that would make meaningful a marketplace for that facilitates a fluid, liquid market for um, tax credits of some description. There's always been, you know, in, for as long as there's always been tax credits. But at bottom, I think it, it's a fair point. And it's, it's actually um, 
something that as a citizen gives me some sensitivity that a change in administration with a stroke of the pen, as you say, could seek to, you know, fundamentally change some of the incentives that have been created in, in recent, certainly in federal leg- legislation. And I guess to some extent that has always existed. I mean, if you think about many of the companies that were formed due to the restructuring of the changes in healthcare under the Obama administration, those of course have been subject to the same type of legislative risk. And yet when those policies get implemented, it's often difficult to roll them back, even with changes of administration or changes of Congress, simply because things do get built. Yeah. within yeah. those frameworks. So do you think Europe has a distinct advantage in this or not? I, I'm not seeing that okay. as a startup lawyer, you know, in California. I'm not seeing a migration to businesses being formed or, or fundamentally focused on the European markets. But I think markets and businesses typically prefer certainty to uncertainty and um, that could evolve to be an advantage or cause more startups to focus more to their go-to-market to the EU. Sure. But I'm not actually seeing that in from what I'm sitting as a, as a, you know, as a, from a legal point of view. Sure. And I think that's really important. You, know, you, you also made mention that we are sitting here in California. And, and so you know, federalism is alive and well. State, state law still also plays, and state tax policy also plays. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and being one of the world's largest economies, do you think California law has a place to play in trying to incent climate and, and sustainability-focused startups in a way that is meaningful here in the United States? Yeah. I mean, I, well, again, this is... Certainly, in, you know, right now there is pending in California two large pieces of legislation around climate disclosure and description of climate risks that are, as I understand it, sitting on the governor's desk. Again, I don't think this is a startup lawyer issue per se, but certainly it shows California, you know, take, trying to take a leadership position. And I suspect that that is rippling through, again, coming to our conversation here, leading entrepreneurs to see opportunities to leverage legislation like that and the momentum that they may create nationally. So for example, there are you know, any number of startups out there that are not boil the oceans technologies, but in, so they're not, they're, it's not as if they need to raise $500 million or something, but are saying, we're gonna create a platform, a solution for assessing your climate footprint, for assessing your reporting of climate risks as according to whether it's the SEC's rules, which eventually are going to come. It's just, we've all been waiting for, I guess it's coming up on a year and a half or more. Um, And California rules and EU rules. So again, to me, an observation I would make is that this highlights classic first principles of, you know, for what I see of, I've seen my whole career with entrepreneurs launching high growth venture capital finance startups is seeing an opportunity in the market created by some market need, reporting your climate disclosure and creating businesses around that. Built around deep domain knowledge of scope one, scope two, scope three, uh, you know, carbon footprints and what have you. Yeah. And I, I think you're spot on in that 
anytime we see a shift, whether it's a market shift, a regulatory shift, a technology shift, opportunities get made. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the fundamental principles of building a startup and knowing your customers and providing value have changed. Yeah. Those yeah. are still core. Yeah. And, 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 and I think hearkening back to the, the course last spring, I, I do, I agree that there are differences. I, I don't, I don't think one can make light of that, but I do think some of the core entrepreneurial qualities, passions, and focuses that come out of STVP, for example, continue to be core to what, you know, allows people to create great solutions from nothing. Yeah. You yeah. know, to say there's a problem, I'm going to, I have, I feel like I feel passionate about it. I'd like to go solve it. And I'm going to do it through the vehicle of this, this new business enterprise. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that we have touched on a couple of times already is multi-stage financing, right? And the multi-stage financing process for startups that are focused in this space can be intricate. What do you think from a, a legal standpoint are, are some of the things that founders should think about yeah. in the differences around multi-stage financing? And, and that can go from like pre-term sheet negotiations to, to closing of institutional rounds um, and, and, and even beyond that as it makes sense. Yeah. Well, there, there's a lot there. Uh, in your question, um, and I think it's a really important question. I think, as I think about, how, there's there's questions around what stage of financing are we talking about, and I think that informs a lot of it. So, for example, for early stage fundings, and, and this is true at every stage, but it, particularly for early stage fundings for a new a new startup, the, you know the questions of who those anchor tenant investors are, and do they share your passion and vision and desire to, you know, kind of roll up their sleeves and help you build a business, uh, and, you know, to seed the company, I think at seed financing stage, those considerations are critical. And so from a legal point of view, you know, what we often try and see is to sort of streamline and minimize the friction in getting that done, minimize the control rights, sort of, you know, the classic simple safe financing where people just say, let's figure out how to get several million dollars into this business and let them go create value. And, and, and to be clear, the, the spirit from a, you know, a deal execution and legal point of view to minimize friction and sort of have a, a reasonable balance of control rights is true at every stage of financing. But I think um, early stage, it, it, those, are, those, are really, those are really amplified. I guess I would, those first few board members right, that, that are going to be your first institutional rounds are, are probably pretty key to making sure that they're bought into the mission yeah. and that they're, they're, uh, they're aligned with the values of yeah. the firm. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. In the first priced equity round, and, you know, which is typically the moment when a startup's board of directors goes from being founder-controlled or entirely founders, perhaps, to a different constitution of the board, I think those are really important questions, and and, and you know it's, it's one of those things where it's hard to dis, you know who would disagree. But having investors who are deeply committed and really leaning in on what it is you want to accomplish, and being more than balance sheet cash, I think there's something to that. I think I do, and that continues to be true. You know, later stages is one of the challenges for a, uh, for many startups is as they layer multiple rounds of 
you know, classics, preferred stock financing, you know, sort of from A to B to C to, you know, the whole, you know, alphabet soup sort of thing, um, is you get a more complicated capital structure. And with a more complicated capital structure, often there can be complicated governance rights, controls that different groups of investors have asked for as part of their financing. So that creates much more complexity, mm. which can, and, and, and differing economic interests that can occasionally create friction in, in sort of how a company moves forward. And so those become, you know, those the later financings then can become obviously more complicated and time-consuming. But the core principles of, the, or the management team thinking about how do we balance the set of rights around control with our ability to get the money we need and sort of keep our proverbial eye on the ball of, of what the core mission of the business is and how do we get there. You know, so it seems as though, you can correct me if, if I'm wrong here, it seems as though there, there may be more opportunities for non-dilutive forms of capital in this space simply because of the mission. And, and, and so whether that is whether that is guaranteed government loans, whether that is a, a variety of other quasi-philanthropics, right? So does that complicate things for startups where you have all of these different sources of, of potentially non-dilutive capital? Or, or, I mean, it seems like a good idea because it's non-dilutive capital, but is it, does it make things easier or does it make things harder when you talk about running? Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know if I'd use easier or hard, but I think, again, it, it's an opportunity. It's a big opportunity. And certainly seeing a lot of that, both you know, um, companies getting philanthropic, investment, concessionary, whatever you want, whatever one what calls it, but capital that might have other objectives than, you know, I want to see a, a 10x return. So I think that is real. Ditto, you know, government grants, certainly many companies going after, you know, government grants. So to take that for a moment, you know, applying for a large DOE grant is a major undertaking, right? It's a core competency that many, you know, startups in the past didn't, you know, maybe you did an RPE grant application at the founding stage and it was a pretty straightforward process and the founders kind of figured out how to get done. On the other hand, I'm, you know, I can think of a couple startups where there is somebody on the management team who has spent an extraordinary amount of time applying for a DOE loan. You know, and these, the, the mm -hmm. process is quite extended. Um, so, oh, a startup I'm involved with has, has done it, and it's a multi-million dollar effort to write the, to write the proposal effectively. Yeah, so you've wit witnessed it firsthand from your, you know, your involvement with that company, I suspect. And it, it mm -hmm. sort of doubles down on the need to have policy, whether you call it expertise or focus, but it's, you know, you're developing relationships with people that are, you know, involved with that loan. So if you have, you know, if you're part of the discussion when DOE is trying to describe how they want to write the requests and, and what should be the priorities and, and you're invited into that discussion, you can help inform and influence perhaps, you know, the, the direction of how it goes. But yeah, they're, they're very complicated processes. And then on the philanthropic, you know, it, you know, what I've seen is it's perhaps a little bit simpler to get it done, but you know, there's, you know, there's always elements, you know, kind of a layer down, there's different reporting, 
right? Uh, maybe the philanthropic wants to know you're going to use this capital to do a particular project in a particular geography. And, you know, accounting for that and tracking that and making that match up with your Sandhill Road investors, usually, I mean, so far, I mean, these, these, these things are playing out, seem to work. And, mm. but we'll see. And there, and you know, there's even a you know a, a seemingly nascent, almost cottage industry of organizations who promote themselves as you know, holding themselves out to young startups as let me help you go, you know, scurry through the nooks and crannies of local, state, federal, perhaps EU rules and legislation to help you find pockets of money that you can go, you know, non-gallutive financing that you are well suited to get. Yeah. So investors love just cookie cutter, um, corporate structures, things like this. I mean, there's, there's a reason why everybody incorporates in Delaware and all those other things, right? Is a B Corp a suitable opportunity for a startup? First of all, what is a B Corp, Dan? So a B Corp is, is actually goes through a certification process with an organization that administers, you know, sort of blesses that you do certain things in an appropriate way. I'm not bumping into B Corps per se as much as I am seeing businesses form as public benefit corporations in, under Delaware law, which is a pretty low friction, simple approach. Um, mm -hmm. I'm seeing more of that and that that's not a problem. I'm not, I'm not seeing that as a problem. Okay. I think there's a certain amount of self-selection of the, you know, the investors who have a predilect, one might imagine that the investors who have a predilection to support businesses that are focused on some of these climate and sustainability you know, challenges, again, at the same time, while being 100% full bore on making 10x returns, and you know, th these are capitalists. This is not, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think any of us mean to suggest anything different. But if you're a public benefit corporation in Delaware that allows the board to take into account, you know, other constituents than purely stockholder interests, um, I've not seen that become a speed bump at all. And then the, the B Corps, I'm just bumping into those less frequently. But I, I, think, I think those companies are they're able to attract capital very readily. And if, you know, it kind of goes for first principles. If it's really important to the founding team, they should do it because it, it at the inception it is their company. That will not well, and it's it's a very interesting way to signal to potential investors how serious you are about that component of yeah. uh, of of the business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's right. Um, having said that, I I think at core I'm seeing more and more founding teams that. It is so viscerally, so so deeply a part of their mission. I mean, I, I don't want to get on a soapbox here, but it is at a core so a core part of their business or their their vision and their passion and their reason for doing what they're doing. That whether it has a B Corp or a public benefit corporation, um, qualif you know, label, if dare I say, I don't know that that is is the litmus test. I think it's really when people sit down you know, with an entrepreneur or a founding team and say, boy, you know, she is just so, this is in the fabric of what she's trying to accomplish. I think that comes through when people, you know, sit and talk with you. Do you think that some of those things complicate the M&A process 
when there's a potential liquidity event? That could also be one of the questions that folks ask is that, you know, as an investor, you've got you've got these founders who are incredibly passionate. Yes, you're aligned on this. But then as as we've said, you know, yeah, the venture capitalist is still looking for the same kind of returns, which means a liquidity event. Yeah. Typically MA down the road. Yep. And 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 having all of those things as part of the you know, the, the, the corporate beneficial structure or B corporate, can that complicate the M&A down the road? And what you're seeing yeah. from your seat is that, no, it doesn't. Yeah, I, I'm not seeing that. I think, you know. And that's really important because that, that means that it's more likely that folks will go down this road then because there has to be some kind of liquidity at the end yeah. in order for the uh, to get finance. Yeah, and I think we're a little bit in the early, you know, not I won't say early stages, but... It, I, don't, I mean, I don't know what, I'd be curious what your impressions are. It feels like it's really been in the last, you know, five or some years where we've really seen the resurgence in some of the focus on, on these domains. And, um, you know, the cycle for some of these companies is longer. So I think there's a lot of M&A yet to come, but I'm certainly not seeing anything that indicates that, you know, for example, being a public benefit corporation would somehow put the skids on a buyer's enthusiasm to, you know, buy a company or say, well, we discounted your value because of your corporate structure. I've not seen that, at least from where I sit. Yeah, I think you're spot on there. Um, I think in the clean tech 2.0 kind of, of, of phase as we are right now is still a little bit new in order to be able to really see if there's an impact in the M&A or liquidity event space. Yeah. We're not quite to that part of the cycle yet. And I think it's going to be fascinating to see to see what happens. Yeah, right? I'm, I'm excited uh, to, to, you know, to see what unfolds or continues to unfold. You know, as, so as we sit here and talk about, you know, okay, early stage financing and then M&A and liquidity events, you know, you have helped a lot of companies go from formation all the way uh, to exit. And so if we think of the life cycle of uh, a tech startup that's kind of in this space, is that life cycle different? I and mean, we've talked about a few things here and there, but, but overall, you know, is, is the life cycle that different? And, and, and is the end goal any different? Yeah. Uh, so I think there's two pieces there. I think the life cycle probably is, you know, again, for some companies, um, you know, uh, trying to fundamentally again i'm not a, i'm not a scientist or a technologist the way you know an engineer as you are but fundamentally to reinvent the way we create energy or the way we grow food well, you know, i think the life cycle could be quite long for those companies to form perfect technology prove out technology and scale in the market could be a long time and that raises a whole set of issues that i think really steer us towards you know, saying, boy, entrepreneurship might look pretty different in this world. So I think it is longer. And I'm actually seeing some startups, uh, as, a, as a, just an anecdotal, move from four-year to five-year vest schedules, which we saw in, in 1.0. Wow. Yeah, I've seen uh, really seriously consider moving back to, a, a, you know, over to a longer vest. To the, the, the question of the end goal, you know, the, I don't know if that's a uniquely legal question. So I, I'm sharing, you know, these are like some of my other comments. I think these are more observations from somebody who is a, you know, an active supporter of, of people launching businesses in this domain. 
what I'm seeing, and one is, is one of the things that I am most excited about, is people, often young, honestly, coming out of uh, a university or what have you, with a greater belief and passion for the end goal. Or, you know, a, a strong, the articulation of why I'm doing this and the problem I think I'm solving and how important it is to me and how I communicate those messages to the world you know, on my website or what, that end goal is, is being, I'm seeing that more strongly stated than perhaps I did in the past. Um, a much more, you know, people saying that this business, we're doing this because we see this huge problem and we want to make a dent in this problem. And I think that's compelling. So I don't think that's a legal issue. I think that's, you know, so as a citizen's observation, but I am seeing that. Um, and I think that is um, encouraging to me um, that there's people that, you know, are using their skills and their expertise and their energies to, you know, solve problems that, that may benefit, you know, many, many, many people in a very broad way. So, Dan, as we record this, uh, we recently had UN Climate Week in New York. And I know you were in New York for UN Climate Week. Did it feel different? Was it the same? Was there things that you were excited about from Climate Week that, that, uh, that, that you'd like to share with us? You know, there's a lot, there's a lot of information out there of, of people's views and summaries of Climate Week, so I won't try and trump all that. I think for me, being in person with many of the people that I'm you know, involved with is always a great thing. Seeing that level of focus in one place at what time and is, is compelling. Uh, I think that the question is, is this going to, you know, is this going to move the pile and are we, are we doing things that are really going to matter? I personally think it does. So I, I found it a very productive week covering just a whole range of topics. So it was, it was uh, I, I was, I came away energized, not discouraged. Well, so before we finish, we have a little segment that we like to do at the end called Four to Fix the Planet. All right. Uh, so it's a series of questions that we ask all of our guests. All right. You ready? I'll try. All right. So what's on your bookshelf, your playlist, or your feed right now? Uh, boy. Okay. Reading. I've just been reading. Actually, so I read a couple books on water and um, sort of back-to-back uh, Cadillac Desert and uh, Dreamt Land by Mark Antrax. And one is sort of the history of water in the West, and the other is more of, of the, the role of water in California in the Central Valley. Fascinating. You know, just you, you, sometimes you hear the expression that if, if climate is a shark, water are the teeth. And uh, I think there's something to that. So that was very interesting. And then I, I make it a habit. There's you know, so many great daily or weekly um, email blasts and ways to get smart on a whole range of things. Canary Media, I always find, you know, four days out of five, one of their articles is relevant to something I'm doing. Uh, Climate Tech VC, I think the work they're doing is I always come away from reading one of their things smarter than I was before. Uh, Rocky Mountain Institute, again, same thing. So there's uh, there's just all those are, are, are make me better every day. You know, uh, the, the, the water issue, both in the Western United States and in California, is such an interesting confluence of legal questions oh, yeah. because water rights are a legal question, but also a, a, you know, a physical question that water is a physical resource and, and therefore you can only do so much with it. And, and, um, and, and the way that it is a, an annual resource, it's cyclical. 
and that it just is is such an interesting topic. Yeah. All right, number two. Uh, what's keeping you up at night? Um, are we gonna you know are we gonna get there? I mean, again, this is. Um, I believe there's a problem. I you know I'm, and I, I wonder if we'll get to 1.5 or anything near it. And um, I guess an adjunct of that is, you know, there's such a there, in so many instances there's such a kind of a you know a free rider problem in a lot of these, a lot of this, and and making sure that the political appetite to continue to put our shoulders against this doesn't wane either domestically or elsewhere. Number three, what's giving you hope? Uh, Mentioned it before, smart and passionate young entrepreneurs saying, I want to go solve this. Uh, I want to work towards this. I mean, there's just, you know, obviously there's thousands of people like that. um, Millions, I hope. And um, I think that is, is, is reason for great optimism. I mean, I think creative, smart people, creative, focused, committed people can solve big problems. All right. And finally, uh, what's your favorite sustainability hack? Something that people listening could do to add to their day-to-day lives that you think would make a great difference. Oh, that's, uh, I said that's right. <laughs> uh, ride a bike. I, you know, when you can ride a bike and then more, you know, there's some levity in that. And then, um, I think there's just lots of little things that I try, you know, all of us try to do. We all have our own things, but, you know, there's a lot of just really small things. Reuse that water bottle. You know, if you can bring your own bag to Trader Joe's. Uh, I mean, there's, I think there's many, many small things. So the little things matter. And I, and I try and that's, I guess, part of my hack is, is doing that and riding my bike. That's great. Well, I've been talking <laughs> with Dan Dorison, a corporate partner at Fenwick and West, who has extensive experience here in Silicon Valley thinking about uh, climate and sustainability uh, tech startups, uh, among others. So thank you so much, Dan, for joining us and talking with us today. Thank you, Mike. This was great. Uh, I mean, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you. If you enjoyed this show, be sure to subscribe to Move Fast and Fix the Planet wherever you get your podcasts and help others find it by rating reviewing, and sharing. Learn more about this podcast and related work at stvp.stanford.edu forward slash sustainability. Move Fast and Fix the Planet is hosted by me, Mike Lepic, and produced by STVP, the Stanford Engineering Entrepreneurship Center. This episode is supported by Stanford Ecopreneurship Programs. Our producers are Holly McCall and Anthony Ruth. Editing is by Stanford Video. For more podcasts, interviews, and articles, please visit stvp.stanford.edu forward slash ecorner.